10 questions. I will give a free book to the first person brave enough to ask a question. Not, not enticing enough? Fine. Yes, in the back with the pink hair. Hi. I'm good. How are you? Is, is that your question? That does not count. That, you, you trickster. I'll still give you a free book. I love you too. You still get a free book, but I'm going to give another free book to someone who actually has a good Yes. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. No, I, I absolutely hear you because what this represents is that there are people in the LGBTQ community who want to know Jesus. There wouldn't be denominations that were pro-gay if there weren't people in the gay community who care about what God thinks. But they're also afraid to enter into a church where they're going to get rejected. Yes, they are. Many of them are. Absolutely. So I have a friend who calls that the church of the revolving door. And here's why. Revolving door. You know what a revolving door is like? And he spits it out. I've met so many people that went into like those denominations or those affirming churches not knowing Jesus, thinking they knew Jesus, and they're in these environments where they're being taught falsehoods. And then eventually they start reading the Bible themselves. And they're like, wait a minute. You know, that's not what it says. You know, and so many people go into those, actually be convicted of their sin, even when they're being taught wrong things. Do we understand that God is actually more able to lead us into truth than the enemy is to lead us into deception? And let me just clarify one other thing. I mean, this is an assemblies church, so I'm assuming there's some Pentecostalism here that we believe that the Spirit moves and is active. But where did we as the body of Christ start believing that Satan actually has more ability to communicate to us than the Spirit of God? That it's easier to hear and, and understand his voice than it is the Lord's? I say that to say this. Like, this, is a, this is a huge problem. These, what was that? Oh, no, they do not invite me. I got invited once. Once to a Presbyterian church that was like gonna like argue with me. And I got invited by one of the elders who had just come back from the mission field and went, What is going on here? You know, and was like, We need someone to come and bring some truth. So I had a conversation, and multiple elders of this church were shouting me down. And so I thought, Well, I'm not gonna be shouted down. I, I got invited here. I'm gonna talk. I have the microphone, so I'm gonna talk. I did not get invited back. Um, but, I, but I have these conversations with people in the church all the time. And you know, one of the motivators for people to go to a church like this, again, is they don't want to be rejected. You know, and a lot of the people in the LGBTQ community that I've talked to about spiritual things want to go to these places because do you understand how scary it is for them to contemplate giving up that identity or their partner? Because you have to understand this community believes 100%. Like, most people believe that their homosexual or transgender identity 
are inborn and genetically caused, and they can't change it. So in order for them to follow Jesus, they either have to believe that Jesus accepts and purposed that, or they have to, in this mindset, believe that Jesus is not going to allow them to live out who they are. And so that means if you go to church, you're not going to have any romantic relationship. You're going to be cut off from people who think, feel, and experience life like you. You're going to be then substituting that gay community, which is super inclusive and doing things all the time, for a church that maybe meets for an hour or two a week and doesn't really know what to do with you and doesn't really want you. So the answer to this crisis is this theology of desperation of let's just change what the Bible says so that we can have Christian community and still you know, have some hope that we won't be alone for our entire lives. Well, part of the problem is that we as the church are believing the lies that that this is inborn and unchangeable. Can I ask this question? Does God redeem people? Did he redeem you? Have you seen times where he's taken the sinful things that you've done and turned them right around to actually bring him glory and you good? I mean, I can. I make a career out of it. So... But that being said, it requires this belief that God will actually bring redemption. Let me ask this. When did we start believing that the God of the universe who created the cosmos, brings people back from the dead, heals diseases, and redeems our sin, can't address our sexuality? When did sex become more powerful than God? Well, these falsehoods have been told over and over again in culture, not because they're true, not because there's any evidence to them, but because the idea that homosexuality is latent, inborn, and genetic is the basis by which then they find civil rights for the LGBTQ community. Because if this is immutable and unchosen, I'm a protected class, and you can't discriminate against me. Not that we should, but it's their basis for aligning this up just in the same category as biological sex, race, You know, all these things, because this is immutable and unchangeable. However, all of the scientific evidence, all of the studies over the last 25 years point to the same reality. There is no latency, no gene, no biological cause to immutable homosexual or transgender orientation. There is no evidence for it. At all. And so when we look at the worldview of an individual in this life and they are believing this is unchangeable, I can't do anything about it, if I go and surrender to this theological belief that this is actually sin, I now have to deny this for my whole life. How lonely am I going to be? How included am I going to be in the church? And I'll tell you the truth. When I was walking through this process, I did not believe that God could change my sexual orientation. I was prepared to be alone. Because for me, that was just the cost I had to count to follow Jesus. And you know, it's not exclusive to homosexual strugglers. There are plenty of people who are heterosexual and want to be married and aren't. They need the church, too, to fill in some of the gaps of those lonely moments where it's like, where do I go for the holidays? I have no family. That make sense? So often this is just a theology of desperation. Where it starts to get, you know, really awful and hard to deal with is when we start getting in these battles of, like, church versus church. And I am, I am all for having a conversation about the theological errors. In fact, I do it all the time. And I talk with people in the LGBTQ community. And, and you know, there was a story that is in my book, again, by my book. Um, 
tell a story about my friend Erica who was asking the very question, like, well, my girlfriend and I want to start going to church, so we're going to go to a church that tells us this is fine. And I told her, well, that's a problem. Because if they're, they're, the Bible doesn't say it's fine, and if they're lying to you about that, how can you trust anything they're saying? And she was like, well, crap. You know, I'm like, I know. And her response to me is like, revealing, very revealing. She said, but I don't want to go somewhere where they're going to reject me. There was a recent um, piece of information done, I think, by the Barna Group, research group, that's, that said that for those who identify as LGBTQ and have left church, most people would assume that it was because of theological reasons. But 87% of them did not leave because the church taught that homosexuality was wrong. They taught because they felt, they left because they felt rejected. Not by the theology, relationally. Right. So there's a difference, but then you've got great questions. Can you repeat the question kind of in I can do my best, yes. Thank you, Mike. So how do I relationally engage and not communicate approval and celebration of their life, but stay relationally engaged? It's a wonderful question. Approval and acceptance are not the same thing. When I accepted my brother, I accepted that my brother has free will given by God to make whatever choice he wants to make. I also accepted that I'm, strangely, not the Holy Spirit. So I don't have the power to convict him of sin. So it's not my job to do that. But my job is to tell him the truth and to represent and incarnate the truth well. And so with my brother and his partner, when they adopted kids, what, how did I respond to that? Well, when they adopted the first kid, I thought, wow, they're going to be really good parents to this kid who's never had parents for three years in foster care. And they're not going to be a complete image of what God wants this kid to have because ideally he would have a mom and a dad and he's never going to have a mom. So then what is my responsibility, what is my family's responsibility to see that deficit and relationally position ourselves in a way that we actually get to minister to that need? So we knew that when my brother and his partner got married, if we didn't, and this is probably a follow-up question that will be asked, but again, hi, the book. It's in there. We went to my brother and his partner's wedding. And we went, having communicated over and over and over and over again that we did not agree with or celebrate their choice, but we were going to demonstrate that we loved them. And that there was no, no choice they could ever make that would ever make us not love them. And so as a demonstration of that commitment to relationship and love, they were very clear where we stood and where we sat at their wedding. And the first words out of the minister's mouth for the wedding, and I did air quote because not a minister of the gospel. <laughs> but the first words out of her mouth was, now we know that some of you are here and you don't agree with this union. But you are here to demonstrate your love for Matt and Will. And for that, they thank you. There was no mystery as to why we were there. We also understood that going to that wedding bought us enough relational equity with them that when they did adopt, maybe we would have actual access to their kids. And then when they did adopt Dustin, their, their, their son, their oldest, he's now eight, he was two back then. 
When they did adopt him, he had been in foster care for his entire life. He had been abandoned by his mother when he was newborn. Um, he was now moving into this home with Matt and Will, and they're, they are good parents. They love him very well, and they provide very well for him. But what they do not provide is a mom. But because of the relational work that we've done to remain in relationship with them, in the tension, they both work full-time. What are they going to do with a two-year-old during the day? Well, Aunt Sue's is home. So my wife got the privilege of caring for this little boy eight hours a day, five days a week for the first full year that he was in our extended family. Aunt Sue's has stepped into a role, a mother role for him, that even though we live far away now, he still loves Aunt Sue's. And we have that privilege because we made ourselves uncomfortable. Because we stayed in relationship where it would have been very easy for us to leave. We stay in the tension. Now that's one answer to that. So how did we respond? We showed up. We were there. We, they know what, where we stand. They know and they can see where they're lacking because they are two men raising kids. They know they lack a mom. And that reality crashes into them multiple times and it hurts. So we're there to not try to take the pain away, but to validate it. Like, yep, this isn't what God intended. Kids are supposed to have a mom and a dad. But man, this is a great thing that you're doing for this kid. You're loving the orphan well. So I hold it in tension. You know, there's good and there's bad there. The second part of the question is, what do we do and how do we confront things? My brother and his partner have said to us multiple times, our faith community is just like yours. We're just gay. We're just as moral. We're just as, you know, Christ-like as you are. We're just gay. That's the only difference. And I'm like, no, I don't believe that it is. So there have been moments in life where just being in relationship with them means we have proximity and we see things and we hear things that, again, much more is caught than taught. So much more is observed than told. So they were over at our house one night watching. We, we used to watch The Amazing Race together. Like it was a very neutral activity for us to relate on when we were first trying to like bridge the gap. My brother used to say, you and I should go on The Amazing Race. That would be good television, you know? The gay twin brother and the ex-gay twin brother and all the drama, you know, it'd be amazing television. It might be. I want to rethink that. Um, but we were there getting ready to watch, and they got a phone call. And Will, my brother's partner, answered the phone, and, and he was talking, and it was one of the, the ladies from their church, and they were, they were going to be throwing a goodbye party for their pastor at their house, at their gay-affirming church, the pastor, that's going to have the goodbye party. And as they're working out the details of this, the girl asked my brother's partner a very specific detail that then he had to ask Matt in front of my wife and I. Do you know what the question was? <laughs> Do you just love moments where God allows you to see things like, and it just confronts the lie that someone might believe, and you're like, mm, look at that, tasty morsel. <laughs> so he turned to my brother and he goes, Erica wants to know when the stripper should show up. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for that divine gift to me today. I sat there in silence. And I thought, Lord, I want to say something, Lord. And he's like, don't do it yet. 
don't do it yet. And I was like, okay. And I sat there, and the discomfort rose in the room as Will was not getting the clue from my brother that this was not something they wanted shared in front of Drew and Sue's. So Matt was like, and Will's like, what? We need to know when the stripper's going to show up. And Matt's like, and he's like, no, we need to know when the stripper should show up. And I'm just like, And Sue, she was so funny. She had been walking in from the kitchen. She goes. <laughs> I just look like a coward, you know? <laughs> like, so I'm sitting there, and, and finally Matt goes, I don't know. Just shut up. And Will goes, oh. And there's this long silence. What they call a pregnant pause. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, Lord, please. And finally, after about, probably no joke, maybe 10 minutes, he goes, okay, go ahead. And I went, long silence. Everyone is just staring forward at the television. And I went, I'm confused. And you ever have one of those moments where you know, like the person knows that they're confronted and caught, and it's like the slow look, like, so he looks at me like, what? And I said, in my world, when I think pastoral goodbye, potluck is what comes to mind. Tater tot casserole, you know, gift cards, I don't know, coffee and bars, you know, I don't, I don't know. But stripper? And he's just looking at me. And I said, I'm having a hard time understanding how your community is just like mine. Can you explain to me how your community choosing to have a stripper at your pastor's goodbye party is morally the same as my community? And he just stared at me. And he went... I can't. It's not. Okay. And we're done. Sometimes our job is just simply to hold up the mirror and to, to display and re respond back with the incongruities in people's life, lives and just say, you're believing a lie and you know it. You're perpetuating a lie and you know it. This isn't, this isn't, this is so obvious that this is not the same. You know, their decision to stay in that environment is simply to avoid rejection, to avoid the pain and the reality of what would it look like to surrender their lives to Jesus. Because this, for, for, for context, when an LGBTQ-identified person who's built their life in that community and that identity actually gets convicted by Jesus that they need to leave that behind. Can you imagine how much consequence there is to that decision? They're leaving their identity. They're leaving their spouse or loved one. They're leaving their community, the life they've built, their understanding of who they are in it. They're leaving everything behind with no guarantee that their sexual orientation is going to change, that their identity is going to change, that if it does, anyone will ever want them. And they're surrendering all of that for all the unknown 
to go into a community that does not know what to do with them and honestly probably is pretty reluctant to invite them in. Can you imagine the loneliness and the angst and the despair that a person like that would experience? Especially when our posture normally towards them is self-righteousness and a complete lack of empathy. Because for a lot of us in this room, when you came to Jesus, Jesus was something you added to your life. It didn't change a lot. You didn't have to wrestle with your identity, with your entire community. You didn't have to wonder if you were going to be alone for your entire life. Jesus entered into your already established life and reformed it a bit. But you didn't have all that to lose. When we stand up for the truth without any empathy, we are completely tone deaf to the cost of discipleship for the LGBTQ person. How about the transgender person who is post-surgical, transsexual? I have a good friend named Kathy Grace who lived as, for 12 years as Keith. She did not have bottom surgery. She had had, she had, had her breasts removed years before. She was fully in the hormones. She had male pattern baldness and a beard. You would never have been able to tell just looking at her that she was biologically a woman. She came to know Jesus as Keith. She was in church for 12 years as Keith. When the Lord finally called her back to her original gender, it took five years from the time she stopped taking hormones for her to be able to physically pass as a woman again. How long is our tolerance to sit with pain, to sit with grief for people who are facing it? I'll tell you the truth. Normal grief, Christians are good for about two weeks to a month. When someone dies, we get the meal train going. We bring the cards. We, we, we show up strong for about two and a half, three weeks. At about that fourth week, we're starting to get a little weary of it. At the end of the month, we've moved on. And that person experiencing the grief is now facing it pretty much abandoned by a community that was showing up real strong for a month. We get grief-weary and tired. Imagine five years, and you've already struggled with feeling like you don't belong in your own skin, so you surgically altered it to make yourself feel better. Now Jesus comes and convicts you of it, so now you have to spend another five years waiting to once again feel okay in your own skin to undo the consequences that you've done to yourself. Do we have the stamina and the grace to walk with people through that? We'd better. You know what Kathy Grace does now? Well, she travels the country speaking redemptively. She speaks to lawmakers. She speaks for groups. You can see her testimony on YouTube. It's profound. She's another Saul turned Paul. And often what makes the difference between whether a person like that actually has a ministry and a message to give is not about the power of God. God can do whatever he wants in someone's life. God chooses to use us, his church, to be the instruments that bring healing to people. It's on us. It's our responsibility and calling he called us to go into the world and make disciples of all men, right? It's on us and how we treat people. C.S. Lewis said it profoundly years back in his book, Mere Christianity. He wrote, 
this, uh, and I won't verbatim quote it, but he basically said this, is that we have never in our lives met just an ordinary person. We are constantly engaged and relating with eternal beings that will either have an eternity in heaven and resemble something that we might be tempted to worship as God, or someone headed for hell and spending an eternity existing in a form that we would never want to confront in our worst nightmares. And the differential of what gets a person to either one of those destinies often is how we treat them, how we represent Jesus to them, how we minister to the needs and the brokenness that we see. That's the difference. Yes, ma'am. That's okay. I won't judge you for that. What's your question? Yes. Right. That's a good question. That's a really good question. For me, and this is venturing into the thus saith Drew, not the Lord sort of portion of our evening. Yes, sorry. Thank you, Mike, for reminding me once again. (laughs) Um, What do we do with the pronouns? Is it loving or gracious to use the opposite sex pronouns of people who identify or even share what pronouns we prefer as a way of signaling that we are supportive of or safe for the LGBTQ community? Right. Say that again. Right. Right, right. Right. So for me, again, this is Drew, not the Lord. For me, the issue of the pronouns is a thing that I don't do. Like, I don't use opposite sex pronouns for people. If I'm engaged in conversation or talking about a person who's transgender in their identity, I use the name they've asked to be known as. For me, that's a sign of respect. And it's a way to build a bridge relationally and to show I respect your decision. I don't agree with your decision. I don't have to agree with your decision to call you a different name. But I can, I can cross that bridge. For me, the pronouns is, is agreeing with deception in a much more profound way. And come back tomorrow and hear the theology of sexuality, and you'll understand a little bit more why that's so important to me in the gender identity thing. Um, that being said, that's not thus saith the Lord. So there may be times when I was talking to someone today who doesn't have a strong relationship with this person, is building a bridge with this uh, a particular person, found out they're transgender, had been using the opposite sex pronoun because that's how they presented. And she's like, am I guilty? And I'm like, no, no. Because strong words require strong relationship. And if you don't know this is a transgender person, you've been using the pronoun, then you find out they're transgendered. God is not going to be angry at you for calling them she when it's a he. Now, that being said, if you continue in that, you have to go before the Lord and ask, what's my responsibility here? The Lord might say, just keep doing it. Build the relationship. For me and who I am and what I represent and what I teach on, I can't. 
Like, this is the calling of my life. And plus, the conviction for me is, like, I don't want to confuse myself. Like, I need to keep truth straight in my head about gender identity, and I don't want to have to untangle that mess for myself when I go home. You know, it's like, they are this. This is who they were born as. This is who God sees them as. And they might have a different understanding, and I can respect and show dignity and respect to the person, except that this is where they're, they're at. And I'll even use your name, but I will not use your pronoun because that's a line for me that I won't cross. Does that make sense? Right. It can be because a lack of communication or silence often communicates celebration, approval, or or um, accept. You know, beyond acceptance. When we're silent about what we believe and we start doing these virtue signaling things that are like my preferred pronouns, it does carry with it a connotation of agreement. And and but you can get away with it if. You also have the hard conversations where you establish what your beliefs are and you give context for why you're doing what you're doing. Like when I went to my brother's wedding, I don't say this is what you do. I said, this is what the Lord led us to do. And the context of our decision was we had so many conversations with them about where we stood and why we were going. There was no ambiguity or deception in why we chose to be there. Does that make sense? So if you decide that you want to put your preferred pronouns on your profile, that will be received as, as agreement with that community if you're also not communicating why you're doing that. You know, if you say, I'm showing this to let anyone who identifies in this way know that I respect that you understand yourself in this way, and I'm not going to challenge that in every conversation so that you know what you can call me is this, here's my preferred pronouns, I understand where you're at, but also understand that I'm doing this out of respect for your dignity and for your choice. I do not agree with your understanding of who you are, but that's not my decision to make for you. If you come up with a way of communicating your stance, you can do a lot of things to build bridges and step into even the environments of people who are living outside of God's heart and will. We understand the Apostle Paul said, I become all things to all people. He used the rhetorical arguments and the belief systems of the day to craft his apologetic arguments to help people understand. I love when he you know, addressed the, the, the altar to the unknown God, and he talked about the unknown God on Mars Hill in this, this place of, of debate, and then he tied it to his own understanding. He used their cultural context as a bridge for the gospel. We get to do that too. We just have to be very intentional about what we communicate as our intentions when we move into these places. Does that make sense? The time for ambiguity of where we stand is gone. It's not enough to say I'm a Christian and have people know what you believe, right? So we actually have to be bold enough to say, this is my conviction. You know, I'll give you another example of how this plays out and how it can play out in in context with the gay community. Um. The issue of, like, it was real big several years back of do you bake the cake? Do you make, arrange the flowers? Do you take the pictures at the gay wedding? If you're a businessman, do you do this? Can you do this? And you know, much of the Christian community is like, do not bow to the king. Be like Daniel. Be thrown with the lions. You know, that was kind of a joke, but no one laughed. It's getting late. Drew, land the plane. Um, so I had a friend who was a professional soul and jazz musician. 
in Portland, Oregon. She was also our worship pastor. She was bivocational. She did both jobs. And I told her one day, I'm like, you better figure out what you're going to say when a gay couple asks you to sing at their wedding because you're really good. And they're going to want you to sing at their wedding. And she's like, no, they won't. week later, she got a request from a gay couple who wanted her to come and sing at their wedding. And so she called my wife and I. She's like, what do I do? You know, like, because in that time, there was so much conversation about it. But in the Christian community, basically, there was one conversation. Don't. Because you'll communicate celebration and acceptance, you know, approval by your presence. I don't believe that. I believe that when we intentionally walk into environments, I think this, this roots itself in this, this, weird, uh, this weird distortion of holiness that goes back to some of these Old Testament beliefs that if you are pure and clean and holy, the unclean thing will make you unclean. Right? Do you know this in, in Jewish culture? Like if the leper touches you, now you're unclean. If you touch a dead body, now you're unclean. If you, as a woman, have your period, you're unclean. You know, it's like these things defile your purity. And so you had to go through the process of being made clean again. And that's your holiness, is that set-apartness and not being made unclean by the unclean thing that you touched. This is how it operated. But then Jesus came and completely flipped the script. Because when Jesus, as the Holy One, touched the unclean thing, it did not make him unclean. He made the unclean thing clean. Because a translation of holy with the Holy Spirit can be understood as the sanctifying spirit. That we carry in us the Holy Spirit of God, that when we walk into broken, dirty, unclean places, we don't have to fear being made unclean by those places if we are walking in the Spirit, because the sanctifying spirit brings the holiness of God to the dirty, broken places. Amen? A little more enthusiastic about that. Amen? Amen. Which means that not only we have the calling to go, but we have the empowerment to go and be, and be powerful carriers of the presence of God to broken places. So I said to her, you can do this, but you have to be clear with them about where you stand. And she goes, how do I do that? So we worked it out. And so she met with them, and she did exactly what I asked her to do. She, she started with the same kind of meeting she would have with any other client. She went over her song choices, she went over the time commitment, her hourly rates, her contractual information, all of it was established. No different than anybody else. And I said, and when you're done with that, you have to say this or something like this. One more thing I need you to know. Because it's your wedding, I believe you have the right to know who you're hiring. Yes, I'm a soul and a jazz musician, but also I'm a worship pastor at my church. And I believe in a traditional biblical view of sexuality and marriage. And because of that, I don't agree with the choice that you're making. But it's your choice to make. And as much as I have this conviction on the issues of sexuality and marriage, I also am equally convicted of the words of Jesus that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so I want you to know that even though I would not be able to celebrate this with you, And if you hire me, I will not be celebrating this with you. Neither you nor any of your guests would be able to tell that by how I will perform for you. Because I will perform with the same level of professionalism and commitment I would for anybody else because I believe Jesus would do that too. He would treat you with the same respect and dignity that he would treat anybody else. And so that's what I'll do. If you hire me, you'll never know. No one will ever know. But from my conscience, I needed to let you know that this is where I stand. 
if it's important to you that, that the people serving at your wedding are celebrating with you, then maybe you'll want to make a different choice. But if it's not important to you, then I'll be there. They looked at her with jaws dropped wide open, and they were like, wow. That was the most respectful way I think you could have handled that. We don't know if it's important to us that the help, you know, they were being a little catty, the help is celebrating with us. We don't, we haven't ever talked about it. We haven't ever thought about it. We honestly don't know what to tell you. And she said, well, you don't have to answer me right now. I will hold the date for you. Take a couple weeks and think about it and let me know. No rush. I'm like, okay. Two weeks later, they called her. You know what? We've been thinking about this, been talking about it. And we've really realized it is important to us that the people that are there on our day are celebrating with us. So we've chosen not to hire you. She's like, great. I hope you have a wonderful day. And off she went. She did not violate her conscience. She did not violate the law. And she probably was one of the first experiences this gay couple had with a Christian who was gentle, respectful, loving, and truthful. She did not create a barrier between them and Jesus. She did not mount an offense against them. She was honest, she was truthful, and she was loving. And it worked out really well. And if she had been asked to go and sing, would it be uncomfortable for her? Yes, it would. Would she have violated her conscience? No, she wouldn't have. How do I know this? Because two weeks later, a lesbian couple asked her to sing at their wedding. And she said, well, I'm locked and loaded with this response. So she went in and she said, bloopity bloop, bloopity blop, Jesus. You know, and they, that's exactly how it went. And they said, we don't care if you don't like it. Half of our family don't like it. Come on in and sing for us. And she did. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because here's the deal. We are called and commissioned by God to be his presence in this earth, to be incarnationally carrying his presence. And it's real easy to carry it here. Not so easy to carry it into that environment. But I'll tell you, the relational connections that we make when people in the gay community have interactions with Christians who are actually kind and loving and gracious and yet also stay with their convictions, it compels them to ask questions and to engage more. It doesn't repel them. It actually creates bridges. So as uncomfortable as it might be, you do have the permission from God to ask, what do I need to do in this circumstance? Is it something where maybe I won't have to do this? Or is this an invitation that you're giving me to display and bring the presence of God to a place that won't have him otherwise? Pretty cool, in my opinion, so good luck. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I won't share his first name. And the reason why is a lot of the people that I change some of the details of the story just to protect people, and I don't have the permission for some of these people to be explicit about who they are, but I'll tell you this, God knows who he is. So pray for him. Pray for the kid with the tea. Don't spill the tea, kid. Just come to Jesus. 
Yeah. Anything? I know where he's, he's, he's coming up here, so if you have a question, <laughs> ask one before he gets up here. Yes, sir. Sure. Yes, absolutely. I'll tell you this a few statistics so you can see the, the concrete examples of how this is happening. I'll repeat the question. <laughs> I love you, Mike. I, you know, I was like, I felt it on the back of my head. Repeat the question, Drew. Okay. Um, the question was, is there an increase of people finding their way into this alternative life identity because of the glamorization of homosexuality, transgenderism in our culture? Yes. So 10 years back, it would have been rare to engage with a person who was struggling with, with transgender identity. Um, and it would have been rare to have parents calling about that. Now, it's like everybody. And statistically, they just had this statistic come out in the UK that... Youth uh, under 20 identifying as transgender has gone up 6,000%. Which tells you one thing profoundly. This is not biologically caused. Because no biological anomaly grows in that rate that quickly. Um, currently, the Barna Research Group has done some research, and, and based on their sample size, I think it was like 1,700 people, so it's not a great sample size. But from their survey, they found of those 1,700 people, uh, Christian youth, 30, like something between 25 and 30% are identifying on the LGBTQ spectrum of youth under 20 in the church currently. Um, the, the rates of people who are identifying in the in millennial generation and generation Z is like in the 20 to 30% range, where the national percentage right now currently is about 6% for the entire LGBTQ community and about 0.6% for transgender community. So even though um, currently there's still very low statistics, the rates are going up exponentially high because of the promotion of the lifestyle, because of the, more than that, the promotion, the invitation of the lifestyle, and the cultural narratives that have now become entrenched and enshrined as law, like moral law in our, in our culture. So one being, if you feel this way and you've done this, this is who you are. That formula of your feelings and your behavior determine your identity. So we don't even have to do sexual minority identity just to see how damaging that can be. Um, you know, this has crept its way into, like, recovery communities, because if you act addicted and you feel addicted, what are you? An addict, rather than someone who struggles with addiction. Saying you are experiencing a struggle is very different than saying you are something, right? Right? Because we live from our identity. And so in our culture right now, and I will get to you, because Mike can't get up here yet, um, because of the promotion of this and because of the, 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 the promotion of experiment, you know, try it, see what you think. We all know spiritually, whatever you sow, you reap. And you can cultivate appetite. 
in any direction. I'm going to say something slightly controversial, but you're just going to deal with it, okay? The Bible does not have sexual orientation as a concept. Sexual orientation is not a thing in the Bible. Sexual behavior is a thing in the Bible. The Bible assumes that humanity is going to be tempted in a lot of very strange ways sexually. Read Leviticus, or don't. But there's a lot of things that people did sexually that wasn't attributed to an inborn orientation. It just was based on brokenness and exposure and experimentation and lust and all these things cultivate into what then you know, is reaped in their character. So currently in our culture, we have so much push to experiment and to try and to just be fluid in your sexual expression or orientation. And once then you start cultivating it, then the label hits. Ah, you like it because, or you're enjoying this because, or you find fulfillment because this is who you are. That make sense? So yes, the glamorization. Bye, guys. I will try not to feel rejected. Although it's been an issue for me in my life. Bye. So yes, it's on the increase. And so that's why I would like to say this as well. There is no one plus one equals homosexual or transgender person. So my story, when I share my story, sometimes people use it as a tool to understand the community and people in their lives. Sometimes they use it as a weapon. Please don't use my testimony as a weapon. You know, please don't use it as like an accusation tool saying, well, since Drew changed, you can too. We don't know the outcome for people. But the the permission and the promotion of, of these behaviors of just sexual liberation, it, it's, it's exponentially growing. Five years ago, there was 35 gender identities that were recognized by whoever. Now there's 76. I know. I don't even know what they are. And I spend my whole life studying this stuff, and I'm like, I can't keep up. I'm just going to call you you and move on like so there it yes yeah, it's being it's growing a lot and you combine that with the fact that the church has not responded very well and have not given actual life-giving teachings on sexuality we've given a lot of moral teachings on sexuality but not purpose-based teachings that tell us why we preserve and protect this so you'll want to come back and hear the theology of sexuality how many of you are coming back Okay, so will I. All right. So, yes, your question. God bless you. Yeah. No. How do you approach that? I mean, right. Like a lot of people weren't in position right. A lot of these decisions for what is being dictated to the schools come from a federal level. And if you want to understand what is being dictated from the federal level down to the state level, uh, there's a lot of really bad law that is not dictating this. And a lot of administrations don't want to do it, but they are mandated to. And so we all know how mandates go now, don't we? <laughs> um, that being said, 
one of the things, and this is probably not going to be a very comfortable conversation, but I'm Drew, so that's what I do. Um, we respond to this because we're, they're teaching kids at an earlier and earlier age things that are not true and that are like defiling to our kids' conscience. But they're defiling to our kids' conscience not because they're trying to tell them something that's false. It's because we are not having the proactive conversations that actually fill them with the truth first. Because we are afraid to have conversations about sexuality with our kids when they're so young, right? Good for you. I'm glad. But generally speaking, you know, we're generally worried like, oh, my kindergartner is being taught about gender identity. So I'm going to pull them from class. That's one response. Or how about we start talking to our kids about this stuff real young? You know, my kids, they don't have a choice with the nature of who I am and what I do and the fact that we have family that are in the LGBTQ community, we started talking to them at five years old. You know why else we started talking to them at five years old? Anyone want to guess the average age of first sexual experience for the people I've ministered to over the last 20 years? Four. Like it or not, our children are being exposed and taught about sexuality all the time whether by their experiences, whether by what their peers are saying and how they're acting, whether it's curriculum in schools, the constant message on sexuality and the enemy's theology of sexuality is constantly being taught to our children. And we get really uncomfortable with the one time we're going to have the talk. How many of you remember the talk with your family? There's only a few hands. How many of you did not get the talk? I could not have made my point more powerfully. What was that? Yeah. Right, because we all got these messages from culture, from our peers, from teachers, from that, but we did not get the talk from our parents. How many of you remember getting like a a theology of sexuality lesson from the church? I'll give you a hint. Neither did your pastors in seminary or Bible college. Most seminaries and Bible colleges do not give one hour of time to the topic of human sexuality or theology of sexuality or how to pastor people with sexual issues. Pastor Mike? (laughs) How often are you dealing with sexual relational issues in your pastoral office? Yeah, there's a reason you brought me, right? Yeah. 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 That said, we have to be proactive. I see that hand. I see that hand. Don't worry. He's still sitting over there. So as long as you're still sitting here, I'm still going to stand here, and we're still doing this. I was in a, I will say this. I was in a town, uh, where was it? Somewhere here in Minnesota. Um, And I was doing a question and answer time for an assembly's church. It was after a Sunday evening service. There was not a clock in the room. Pastor Steve came up to me at 11.30 and said, Drew, we've been doing this for five hours. You need to stop. I was like, whoops. <laughs> they kept listening. I don't know. Um, so we have to teach our kids. We have to get in their lives and start teaching and training them. One of the ways we do this is we do this on a very appropriate level for their age and their understanding. So when my oldest daughter was five years old, I knew my brother's wedding was coming. I knew we had to have the conversation She's the only one cognizant of all things at that point. So I did, as most dads do, 
when they need to have a profoundly deep conversation with their daughter. I took her with me to the dump. (laughs) It worked, you know. um, I don't know why you judge me like that. Um, So we were on the way to the dump, and I started with this. First, I wanted to know what she believed and what she understood. So I asked her a question. I said, Lainey, sweetheart, what do you think marriage is? And she said, well, it's when a man and a woman, and I thought, yes, (laughs) so far so good. They fall in love, and they become a husband and a wife, and then sometimes a mommy and a daddy, and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, yes, yes. Do you know why we believe that that's what marriage is? Not really. I'm like, okay, this is what the Bible says. On a very basic level, explained marriage, and I affirmed her understanding of it, filled out the details a little bit, age appropriate. And then I said this, sweetheart, did you know that there are some people that believe men can marry men and women can marry women? And she went, what? Who? I said, well, your Uncle Maddie and your Uncle Will. She sat there for a second. Oh, (laughs) well, do they know it's wrong? (laughs) Yes. I've had a lot of conversations with them about it. Well, what have they done about it? I'm like, they don't agree with me. We've had a lot of conversations and they don't agree. They, They believe this is fine, but we believe this. She got really quiet, kind of looking off into the distance, and she goes, Danny, I think you need to stop telling them it's wrong. And I got a little, honestly, I got a little concerned. So I thought, oh, crap. I said, why? And she goes, well, Dad, if you keep telling them it's wrong, I think it's going to make them sad and angry. I'm like, you are five. How are you this emotionally intelligent? Oh, right, you're my child. Oh, yes. (laughs) Hmm, yes. I said, you know, you're right. It does. It makes them upset, and it makes them angry when I continue to pursue that conversation with them. I said, but, you know, just not doing something I, I don't think is the right plan. So what, what should we do? How do we, how do we do this? And she sat there for a little while longer and she goes, well, daddy, I think we just need to love them like Jesus loves them. I thought, I am the best father in the whole <laughs> world. You know, and we, we ended the conversation because honestly, at five years old, that's about the level that you're going to have. Two years later, when my second daughter turned five, we had another conversation. I invited Lainey in. I said, Lainey, don't tell her the answers. <gasps> okay. <laughs> Livy, yes. What is marriage? <laughs> you and mom do it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, no, seriously, Livy, what's marriage? I said, well, it's when a man and a woman. I said, yes. And they, you know, they, they love each other and they get married. And then maybe they have kids. Pretty much the same answer. I said, great. And Lainey goes, good answer, Livs. And I was like, yes, it's the right answer. I said, here's why we believe that. And I, once again, shared from Scripture. And then I said, and I looked at Lainey, I said, don't tell her. I'm like, okay. I said, Livy, did you know that there are people that believe that men can marry men and women can marry women? And she goes, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's silly. Now, mind you, my daughters have been involved in the lives of my brother and his partner their entire lives. They've never put them together. Why? Because they're so used to the authentic that we are presenting them day in and day out. Their context for this is what we are showing them in our healthy marriage. 
This is not in their heads and in their minds. People worry that if we invite people into our lives, that our kids are going to go wayward because the influence, maybe, if we're not having good conversations, if we're not demonstrating the truth, if we're not like intentional with our relationships, but my kids who have been exposed their entire lives to these people, that Uncle Will was the first one to hold my daughter Olivia after she was born, they did not put them together as a couple. Because that's not what men do. Because God made man for woman and woman for man. And so she says, well, who believes that? And I said, and Laney goes, Uncle Maddie and Uncle Will. <laughs> like she had this secret she couldn't wait to tell. And Livy goes, oh, that explains so much. <laughs> I thought, I love you, Liv. Like, <laughs> you're so funny. And, and I'm like, Okay, she goes, well, she goes, do they know that it's wrong? I said, yeah, we've had conversations, and they, they don't agree. She goes, okay, so what, are we just going to love them well? Like, yep, that's what we're going to do. Because they've also seen us love people really well in our home, because hospitality is not just a concept, it's something we do. They were there in the home when this young man was brought into our home for three weeks. They were in our home where multiple people have been brought into our home. And they see how we demonstrate love for people all the time, even people we don't agree with. They see it. It's clear. So then after she, we had that conversation, and you know, she said, okay, well, we're just going to love them. Then I did one more thing that I didn't do with Lainey. I looked at them. I said, girls, did you know Daddy used to be one of those people? What? What? But you're with mom. I know. Isn't Jesus amazing? He can redeem and free anyone from anything. Do you know what I gave my daughters in just that one statement? I gave them permission to be honest with their struggles. I demonstrated for them also without having to explicitly say it that no matter what sexual mistakes maybe they're going to make in their life, God can redeem. And that their dad would understand. Like, I'm setting a standard of open communication and truth for my kids. We talk about everything. I mean, I'm the dad that, and I swear to you, if this happens with my third child, I'm going to blame my wife and she's going to pay. But my wife left on little girl trips with her friends both times that both my older daughters had their first periods. Jesus, take the wheel, take it from my hand. No, I mean, my oldest daughter, we handled it. She came right to me. Dad, it happened. Okay, do you know where the supplies are? Yes, Mom told me. Retrieve the supplies. She went to get the supplies. Dad, I don't know how this works. Well, sweetheart, I'm also not experienced in this. But we're going to figure it out together, okay? All right. So get another one, and let's get a clean pair of underwear. I'm going to show you how it goes in the thing. And, and it's never, and it, uh, uh, uh. She goes, I think I can do that. I'm like, okay. 
standing outside the door, waiting for a minute, waiting for a minute, rustling, rustling. This feels like a diaper. <laughs> Welcome to womanhood, my daughter. You've now been initiated into the clan. She goes, Dad, that's weird. Okay, I'm sorry. You okay? I'm okay. She comes out. She looks at me. She goes, you did good. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Same thing happened with my second daughter. And it was very much kind of like the marriage conversation. She comes walking out. Dad, I'm bleeding. I'm going to kill your mother. This is when it's going to (laughs) happen. Let's get Lainey. <laughs> Lainey, your sister is now a woman. <laughs> I'll get the supplies. Okay, good. Let's, let's handle this. Like, this is, this is how we handle it. But we have conversations all the time. They know that there is nothing that they can't come to us with. My daughter, my oldest, is in high school now, but when she was in middle school, she started having a lot of friends that identify in the LGBT spectrum, and because... You know, she's, she's not a girly girl. She likes hoodies, and she likes, you know, to be comfortable. She, she just, she's introverted. She's, she's like, I don't care. So some of these girls were seeing some of these qualities, and they were projecting their own insecurity onto her, like, you're gay too. And so she came home one day. She goes, Dad, Mom, what if I am? No boys like me yet. What if I'm gay? Of course, in my head, I'm like, oh, no. How do I address this? Think through all your years of training. And I'm thinking, as a parent, I don't want my kid to experience the struggle I experienced. So I'm starting to feel really broken, and I'm getting a little jittery. My wife simply says to my daughter, do you want to make out with girls? Ew, no. She goes, you're fine. (laughs) Ah, the gentle touch of Suzanne. Your question, sir. You had a question? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of scientific studies that you could give as evidence. Won't always work. Uh, because, again, this is something that his worldview is looking at his experience and what he has experienced in his life and the consistency of this struggle and looking at it through the lens that culture says this is inborn. And, honestly, it's a really easy thing to believe because nobody chooses their vulnerability. You know, he didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll be gay. You know, it's just, it's something that emerged in his life. So one way that you can approach this, and that is really a very interesting way to approach it and equalizing for a lot of believers is, you know, all of us were born broken and bent towards sin. We're all born with original sin. We all need a savior. And each of us have different vulnerabilities to things that feel very natural to us in our own brokenness, Right? Yes, this is the time when the church admits that we struggle with things. And Jesus calls us to be born again. Right? And so it doesn't matter, even if it, if it were inborn, which spiritually it is. Yep. And so instead what we say is, is we go, you know, no matter what you understand about the nature of or the origin of your struggle, what we struggle with does not change what God commands us to do if we want to follow him. You know, the word of God doesn't change. And so 
Does that, you know, affect the way you are discipled? Does it affect your spiritual walk? Yeah, it can. It really can. There's some hard decisions to make if this is your struggle. But even if you are born that way, we are called to be born again. We are called to submit our lives to a God who can transform anything. And so I don't argue with someone's understanding of this. I share this with us, the church, because I want us to be able to discern the difference between truth and lying culture, right? So I'll go over the statistics, dry mouth. But I will not go over those things with people in the gay community because it's not helpful. Because it all is just throwing numbers at them, trying to talk them out of what they have had as a true experience. And so instead of that, I meet them where they're at and say, I understand that. I understand how you could believe that. Because experientially, that feels very true. But regardless of how you start in this life, regardless of what feels natural or normal, we are called to be born again, and we are called to submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ. And Christ calls us to be obedient to his word, and his word does not make space for that. And so with that, it points us right back not to surrender your sexuality. It comes back to, is Jesus Lord or isn't he? Which is the question all of us have to ask. And none of us surrender our sins until that question is settled, right? Yeah. Yeah. We do. Absolutely. And what we believe has to be lived out in order for it to be believable. Right? Yeah. So keep doing what you're doing and pray for him. Pray for his, his eyes to be open to the truth of God. And, you know, there's a beautiful passage of scripture that talks about this, that, that the servant of the Lord, we as servants of the Lord, should not be quarrelsome. We shouldn't engage in foolish arguments and that we should be gentle and able to instruct those who have been taken, been taken captive by the enemy and are deceived into doing his will. And we, we approach this with gentleness and kindness and love and respect so that hopefully their eyes will be opened and they will be freed from that captivity. So let me position it this way. If we look at people instead of as our enemy or as our opponents as prisoners of war, we engage very differently with prisoners of war than we do our enemy. Prisoners of war, we go try to find. And we understand that their captivity may have really wrecked them quite a bit. We take care of and minister to the prisoner of war. The enemy, we try to defeat. They're not our enemy. We have one enemy. Everyone else is a prisoner of war. We respond very differently. Thank you for your question. Yeah. Back there, there was a question. Sir? Yes. Do you know if there's a psychological cause for people to be made a change that, whether it's just like trips in the mind? Yeah, there's multiple causes. As I said before, there's no one plus one equals homosexual, but there's a lot of common threads. And even the American Psychological Association, bye you guys, thanks for coming. Even the American Psychological Association 
they recognize that homosexual orientation, gay orientation, bisexuality, transgenderism, they're a complex combination of biology and environment and beliefs and experiences. So environment, beliefs, experiences are all in those psychological areas. So, for example, if someone experiences something called arrested development, do you guys know what arrested development is? It's where in your development, somewhere along the lines, you get interrupted in the normal process and you get stuck at a spot. So emotionally, you're relating from the place where you were stuck. And a lot of times what happens is trauma will happen in someone's life that gets them frozen into a, a developmental spot and they can't move out of it. Even though intellectually they might be an adult, they respond to pain or to conflict like a, like a 10-year-old. And that's the emotional place that they're responding from. Um, there's also the reality of you know, how trauma affects our brain and, and forms neuropaths in our mind, that we, that we are triggered by certain events that then we attach to different things um, that tell us how to deal with or, or survive the difficulty of that. Does that make sense? Like, if you are rejected and you feel lonely, and one day, let's say, um, the, the, the typical statistics for the men that I minister to, 90% of them come from broken homes, divorced homes. About 85% um, have no relationship at all with their father. Many of them don't even know who their father is. So you have that, that deficit of love of a father, which will not make you gay. It'll make you vulnerable. Okay? Add into that the average age of their first sexual experiences, which men are not allowed to call defilement or sexual abuse. Because in that culture, your first sexual experience, even if it is for someone who is much older than you, is your first sexual experience. You don't call it abuse because that's not how the gay community interprets that. Because it's so common to be exposed to sexuality at such a young age, it's just norm normative in the culture that that is just my first sexual experience. So here you have someone with a love deficit. And, a de and of course, in any divorced home, no matter how good the divorce is, how healthy the divorce is, that kid is still missing something they're supposed to get. There's always a deficit. There's always trauma. And so that kid is not getting all the love, attention, affirmation, and identity that he's supposed to get. So now comes someone who's starting to give him attention. And normally sexual abuse doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen just in one incident. It happens over a period of time where the boundaries and the barriers are groomed and broken down in a child to make them comfortable with or at least not resistant to the sexual abuse that comes. And each time for a kid who has this reality, this deficit in their life, this confusing reality of attention and sexuality becomes really hard to interpret. In fact, there's a, a cognitive marker called centration, which um, for in development, you have like around seven, eight, nine years old where this really starts to formulate. And all this is is the ability to hold two pieces of seemingly contradictory information together in one whole. So they test this, and they've discovered this by like demonstrating you know, a scoop of ice cream, same size scoop, in three different sized bowls. And so they ask the kid to choose which bowl they want. Some kids will focus on the bowl being bigger and think that by virtue of the bowl being bigger, there's more ice cream in the bowl because they can only focus on one characteristic. Some look at the size of the ice cream in the bowl in relation to it with the smaller bowl. It looks bigger, so they think that has more ice cream. They can't both compute 
the size of the scoop and the size of the bowl as two different things that complete a whole picture. Does that make sense? So often when it's relational issues, the thing that will be most prominent or the thing that gets chosen is the thing that is the biggest felt need. You tracking with me so far? So imagine a five-year-old kid, or rather four-year-old kid, because that's the average age of first sexual experience for the hundreds of men that I ministered to over the years. Imagine now that 90% of them are coming from broken homes. High percentage of them come from abusive homes where what attention they are experiencing is verbal, physical abuse and neglect. And in comes someone who begins, bye guys, thanks for coming. In comes someone who begins to show them attention. And now this person crosses a sexual boundary and engages in sexual behavior with them. That sexual behavior will always be two things, defiling and physically pleasurable. Because nerve endings are nerve endings and have mo- no moral distinctions. That kid will be forced to take those two conflicting pieces of information and choose one because cognitively, in their brain and in their thinking, they're not developed enough to hold both pieces and go, even though physically it might have felt good, this defiled my spirit. They don't have the ability to do that. So, whatever is the greatest felt need will be what triumphs in that situation. And for the kid with a love deficit, the biggest felt need is, I need to feel loved. And so they will interpret that experience as feeling loving. And because they enjoyed it, or liked it, or appreciated it, what does that mean about who they are? The world will tell them, it means you're gay. Does that make sense? So there's nothing biological necessarily about that, although the age and the cognitive development or the lack of development made that child susceptible to a wrong interpretation of the event. The lack of love in their life, relationally, made them susceptible because, as I said before in Proverbs 27.7, to the starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. So there's a number of psychological things that happen to form this. There's another story of a woman I ministered to over the years. She had no physical or sexual abuse in her life. Her parents were together. They were consistent um, participants in church. They grew up in a spiritual environment, but she still ended up with a lesbian identity. In a meeting with her one day, we were talking about her history. We were talking about her experiences, and she brought up one memory. One memory. At eight years old, she got into her mom's closet, put on her mom's clothes, her dress, got into her makeup, was getting all prettied up to show her dad. She walked down the stairs. She said, Daddy, look. He took one look at her and said, You look like a whore. Go wash it off. In that moment, she interpreted that as my femininity made me rejected. I don't want it anymore. So, yeah, there are psychological things that happen. But what, that's why I say don't use anyone's testimony as a weapon. Use it as a tool. So when you hear my story and you hear that I come from a, a broken family with physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual abuse, abandonment, all these things, when you hear the, the religious environment I grew up in, when you hear the words I were told about homosexuality, when you hear my experiences, it paints a picture of why I ended up there. So don't superimpose that story as if it's everybody's story, but use it as a grid to say, what happened to you? What happened in your life? Tell me your story. 
and start learning where people come from and what their experiences have been. You know, sometimes there's not observable trauma that you can point to and go, that's it. Sometimes it's just one little decision after another or one agreement after another that pointed them in a different direction. Sometimes it's pretty obvious. Regardless, the Lord will reveal the, the discipleship path for people as they walk in obedience to him. And sometimes it looks very different than others. Like, I know people who've walked out of homosexuality, never went to counseling, never like, dealt with any specific past issues. What they needed instead was, you know, people to affirm their giftings and say, you know, it's okay for a man to be good at music. It doesn't make you queer. You're good. And just that one simple thing of being able to say, no, I'm good as a man. Okay, I can shift my entire perspective. For other people, it's years of therapy, years of support, and it just depends on each person. But what it should elicit in us as the church is compassion. And please hear me, nobody chooses their vulnerability. Nobody chooses how they're weak or vulnerable to this. And so it's very easy to feel misunderstood, condemned, and judged when we position this simply as a choice, like just stop, and behavioral, and when we don't recognize that the vulnerability that people have experienced have come from deep places in their soul that need to be healed, they need to be addressed. The best way we can do that is to learn people's stories. Amen? Any other questions before Mike? Yes. Thank you. Other than shipping them off to the church or read your Bible or go to counseling, is there any good resource that you can come up with other than the, you know, the normal ones, or the, I guess, normal ones that we can just go to? Oh, there's so many good resources out there. Uh, for people that are walking out of homosexuality. There's a number of church churches that have resources and organizations that have resources. Um, you know, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I do have a book. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. One of the normal ones, yeah. And there's also an organization called the Restored Hope Network, which has a number of member ministries around the country that have in-person ministry to this. There's online classes and courses and resources that are available you know, whatever you think of, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bethel Church in Reading. It's where the Bethel music comes from. You know, people have a lot of beliefs and thoughts about Bethel Church as a whole. That's fine. Believe what you want. They have a really great ministry to this. And um, their, their arm towards sexuality, their ministry towards sexuality is called Moral Revolution. But their arm of that ministry that gears towards the LGBTQ community is called Equipped to Love. And they also have the Changed Movement, which I'm a part of, and I do things with them across the country, addressing political issues and sharing testimonies. There's a lot of resources. And, and honestly, a lot of the resources that would be really good for people have nothing to do with homosexuality. Sometimes it's just a book like Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. That's a really good place to start of just beginning to evaluate, are my emotions affecting my spiritual maturity? He has a tagline in there is that you can't be spiritually mature and emotionally immature at the same time. It doesn't work. So those are good places to start, but I'll happily leave some resources, um, some, some places to go with Pastor Mike when I leave. Thank you for the question. Is anyone going to, or are we all like, please shut up and let us leave? 
I think we're going to call time of death on this meeting, and I'm going to say there's a lot more to learn tomorrow with the theology of sexuality. Please come back for that. Thank you, Drew. Fantastic stuff. Of course, if you have a question you were unable to ask, he'll be hanging around. You know, ask him directly. He'll be by the, yeah, come by the table. If you buy a book, you can ask a question. Uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, but anyway, just so thankful to have Drew here. Thankful for your patience. Uh, it, it's one of those things like he was here six years ago. He might come back six years from now. We want to make the most of the opportunity that we have. So it's an incredible blessing to have Drew here. Uh, just the insight, the heart, the experience, all of the different situations that he's been in really uh, speak to all of these issues. And I just think that the way he can approach things is just fantastic. So thank you for being here. I'm going to close this out in prayer. And then uh, tomorrow night, biblical sexuality and transformation, huge, huge topics. So Heavenly Father, thank you for this time with Drew. Lord, thank you for each one that's been here. Lord, I just thank you for uh, a heart that is trying to help people and try to help others understand and deal with very complex issues. And so, Father, thank you uh, for Drew's ministry. And, Father, help us to do our part to shine a light in a, in a dark world and not add inadvertently or through whatever other issues we've got. Lord, let us not add darkness to darkness, but let us bring light. And so, Father, thank you for this night. Bless tomorrow night and the weekend. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.